today is from Psalm 31, which is on page 461 in the, if you're using the black Bible in front of you. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have, re you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you, his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Really grateful to be here. Wave at me if uh, I'm doing something wrong with the mic, okay? All right, thank you. Um, I'm, I just feel very privileged uh, to be standing here. Thank you for letting me share with you this morning. Um, I don't know if you all have anything in your life that is... Uh, something you, you love but uh, terrifies you at the same time and you're not sure if you're really good at it, that's kind of the relationship I have with preaching. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a joy um, 
but uh, not simple, not light. Um, I've been thinking about Psalm 31.5 and the concept of committing my spirit into God's hands for months, and so I'm excited uh, to talk about that. But before I get started, <clears throat> I just want just to stop for a second and, uh, and ask you, ask myself, why are we here this morning? What do we expect to get out of this? Maybe, maybe it's, what would people think of me if I wasn't here? Maybe it's my kids need the example. Maybe it's, this is just what we do. On Sundays, we go to church. Maybe I've been a bad person in the past, and now I need to start doing some stuff to help make up for that, and going to church is part of making up for what I've done. Maybe, maybe I'm hurting, and I need some help, and I would just like somebody to notice me and listen. For whatever reason you're here, I want to say God's glad you're here. In fact, God planned for you to be here. He brought you here. And I want to say personally that I need to be here. That this community, hearing you guys sing the gospel, being together, being reminded of the old, old story of Jesus, to take the Lord's Supper together, to worship our Lord together, I need to be here. But I also feel some of the danger of standing up here and potentially giving the impression that I know what I'm talking about. Given the idea that maybe I've mastered this stuff that I'm going to teach. And, and for anybody who preaches, the motives are all mixed up. There's this genuine desire to help, to serve people, but there's also this dark wish for some pats on the back and some compliments. There's a good desire to connect and to serve and a twisted motivation for any speaker that they could impress people or be admired. Reminds me of the Avett Brothers song, Weight of Lies, and in the stanza where they say, I once heard the worst thing a man can do is draw a hungry crowd, tell everyone his name and pride and confidence, but leaving out his doubts. I'm not sure I bought those words when I was young. I knew most everything. Those words have never meant so much to anyone as they mean now to me. So, it's with some fear and trembling that I'm here. But excitement. When I was 10 years old, 10 or 11, I went to a place called Camp Enloe. Camp Enloe was the local Baptist Association's camp where I grew up. And so every summer, all the Baptist kids from my area would go to Camp Enloe. And it's exactly what you would expect a Southern Baptist church camp to be like. These long, old cabins rows of squeaky bunk beds and musty, smelly bathrooms, the hum of a box fan in the window, trying to get some of the humidity out, the overcrowded pool, the wood-paneled cafeteria that was so loud you couldn't even hear yourself think while you were eating, 
the nurse's cabin over on the edge of the woods where you had to go on the first day and get checked for lice. And the place where inevitably somebody would go with a head injury or a sprained ankle from an overzealous recreation time. And so every night at Camp Enlow, we would have a chapel service, and and a local preacher would come in and do a series. And chapel was, you know, a time for the Baptist kids to finally raise their hands in worship, because you couldn't do that at the normal church. And you heard an evangelistic message every night, a gospel message, and and stories of somebody who was going to follow Jesus but waited too long, And I remember one night after one of those messages, probably Thursday, because it's always Thursday, isn't it, to go forward? If you've been to church camp, you know, Thursday night. After one of those messages, the preacher invited people to come forward and ask Jesus into their heart. And I didn't come forward. I went out the back door. And I remember walking out the chapel and going over by the flagpole and just laying down in the grass in this humid Missouri night sky underneath the stars, and I was on my knees and crying, and I said, God, I don't deserve your forgiveness, but I need it. That was one of the most important nights of my life, and I forget about it all the time. So this morning, I'm probably not gonna give you any new information about Psalm 31. I don't have any fresh insight into what David was going through when he wrote this psalm. What I really need from Scripture today, and what I'm willing to bet that most of us need, is a renewed trust in God, a fresh realization of an old truth. And as I get started, I'll just say this sermon is different for us as a church. Generally, we teach through books of the Bible large sections of scripture, verse by verse, and, and we let that guide us. And that's a wise way to organize the preaching of a church. But in between series like that, I get to do things kind of backwards and, and pick a passage that I'm really excited about and teach that. But that's probably not our habit, not the wisest way to do things, or we would just hear people's favorite verses and pet peeves. So where are we headed this morning? Three things I want to do. I want to talk about the Psalms, I want to talk about Psalm 31, and then ask the question, why should we care? All right? So if you're a note taker, about the Psalms, about Psalm 31, and why should we care? And, spoiler alert, as my kids would say, the main point of the sermon today is this. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we can say with any confidence... Into your hand we commit our spirits. You have redeemed us, O faithful God. That's the main point. If you need to go, that's what you're going to hear. So let's talk about the Psalms. You know, um, John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. An anatomy of the soul. And what he means by that is all human emotions are represented in the Psalms. If you're feeling it, you can find it there from your deepest, darkest valley to your most joyful experience, it's in the Psalms. As Eugene Peterson, a pastor, said, the Psalms are are where we learn how to answer God. It's where we learn how to speak his language back to him in prayer. 
The Psalms are our prayer book as Christians. We learn how to praise, we learn how to beg, we learn how to lament, we learn how to cry out for justice. The Psalms teach us wisdom, and they teach us how to give thanks. But more than anything, the Psalms teach us how to hope in a redeemer and a king who's coming. Peterson said, prayers are tools, but they're not tools to get things or to get things done, but they're tools that form us into God's people. So as we read the Psalms, we should think of them as our instructions about how to be God's people and how to talk to him. And when we read the Psalms, we should remember as well that they're written in a time and a place. They're written between 3,500 and 2,500 years ago to Near Eastern Israelites, a time and a place very different from our own. These are people whose religion involved temple worship and animal sacrifice. And so there's going to be some things in the Psalms that are really different for us as Christians. Just like he does with a lot of the Old Testament, Jesus reinterprets the Psalms for us. Like Josh mentioned in the fall when he preached Psalm 22, Psalm 22 was written by an author and it was real in its moment, but Jesus made it even more real in his death. Jesus fulfilled Psalm 22. And another thing Jesus does for us as we read the Psalms is he reinterprets our concept of anger. We serve a God who taught us not to curse our enemies, but to love them and to pray for them. The Psalms are, are a challenge for us as Christians. In the Psalms, we, we find people who knew far less about God than we do. They didn't have Jesus or the New Testament, but they loved him a great deal more. There was a God-centeredness to their life and a depth to their emotions that, that challenges us to take what we know intellectually and be moved with deeper affection in our inmost being toward God. So about Psalm 31 specifically, David is in trouble. If you're listening, as Ashley read, you could say he was in trouble to say the least. He cries out, rescue me. Don't let me be put to shame. God, you have seen my affliction, the distress of my soul. I'm in distress. My eyes, my body, my soul, my strength, my bones, they're all wasting away, he says. Nobody even wants to look at me. When they see me walking down the sidewalk, they run the other direction. I'm forgotten. I'm like a broken bowl. I'm trash, David says. And worse than that, they're gossiping about me. They're spreading lies. They're scheming about how they want to murder me. I'm crying out to you, God. Save me. Whatever your grief, your fear, your stress, your anxiety, there's room for you in Psalm 31. You're welcome. David is so flawed. Not just a morally flawed sinner, we know that. We know that he's a coward, an adulterer, a rapist, a murderer. But he's also just a normal, fearful, flawed person 
like you and me. And in Psalm 31, he's freaking out. He's losing it. And personally, as a fellow flawed, weak person, somehow this is encouraging to me to read his words. You know, as Christians, life holds a a deeper sorrow and a deeper joy for us. I think it was Tim Keller who said, following Jesus isn't the end of your problems, it's usually the beginning of your problems. Uh, At least historically, that's how it's been for Christians. I don't mean that life necessarily gets worse objectively when you follow Jesus sometimes, but if nothing else, your eyes are opened to the truth about the world and your, your heart starts to feel things when God changes you. You have a brokenness over your sin and the sin around you. You have a grief about this fallen world, but there's also a, a deeper joy too. There's hope. There's serious hope for the Christian. Have, have any of you ever been in an accountability group with a 70-year-old? You don't have to answer. I have, an honest one. And it was amazing. Because you know what 70-year-olds struggle with? The exact same stuff as 30-year-olds. And I remember leaving that first prayer and accountability group at, at this guy's house And I was so encouraged. Somebody can relate. What I'm going through is normal. Life's not easy, but that's okay. So it's the same here in Psalm 31. Hashtag relatable, you know. What David is going through, we can connect with. And I'm not the only one who finds Psalm 31 relatable. Um, It's used all over the Bible. Psalm 31 in the Bible um, shows up in Psalm 71. Jonah quotes it when he's in the belly of the fish. Jeremiah quotes it five or six different times in the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Uh, Paul probably quotes it at the end of 1 Corinthians. This is a a cry for help for Christians that's been used for over 3,000 years. But the main reason I wanted to preach this psalm this morning is because of the most significant place that it's quoted. Jesus' final words in Luke 23, verse 46, are from Psalm 31.5. And then later, when Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church, he says something very similar in Acts 7.59. And in church history, we have a bunch of people who use Psalm 31.5 as a cry for help or as their final words. Guys like Polycarp, a church father, John Huss, Martin Luther, who ever the scholar said it in Latin as his final words, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's look at Luke 23.46. I think it'll be on the slide. Yep, it's behind me on the screen. Luke 23.46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It's interesting to me that Jesus decided to use Psalm 31.5 as his final words, dying on the cross. 
And when we hear Jesus say these words, when we read it in our Bibles, when it comes up every Easter, we can be inclined to think that Jesus is giving up. I've suffered enough. I'm tapping out. And honestly, that's the paradigm that I've had, I think, my entire life as I've read the account of Jesus' death in Luke 23. In my mind, Jesus has been tortured for hours and hours. He's suffered for our sin. His father has forsaken him. He's gone through hell on the cross. And now he's saying, enough. I can't take it anymore. I'm done. But we need to remember that Jesus was an Israelite. Jesus went to synagogue. Jesus studied the scriptures. And he worshiped with the Psalms. It's likely that Jesus worshiped in the local congregation as he was growing up, singing Psalm 31. And Psalm 31 is not a psalm about giving up. As a child, he may have heard Mary and Joseph sing or pray Psalm 31 in the house during times of fear or uncertainty when they are crying out to Yahweh. And Jesus knows all of Psalm 31, not just verse 5. It's not all despair. Jesus isn't giving up. He knows that he's won. Jesus is not despondently destroyed on the cross, saying, I can't take it anymore. He's surrendering his life to his Father with a triumphant consciousness. He knows that he's won and that he'll be resurrected. And and it's not just Jesus who knew what Psalm 31 was all about when he quoted it, but all the Jews around him as he's dying, they know Psalm 31 too. All the Jews gathered around him would have sung this psalm. They would know that this is David talking about how Yahweh will deliver him. They would have sung it too, and they would have known that David was delivered Those who had cheered for Jesus' death must have had a cold shiver of fear run down their spine when he said these words. He's not done. His disciples who followed him, perhaps those who are hiding in shame in the corner like Peter, or those who are scared but still faithful like John and Mary, well, I imagine that they're confused like usual. Jesus, you said you're the Messiah, and now you're dying. They're killing you. Jesus, you said no one could take your life away from you, and they're doing it. Jesus, you said you'd rebuild the temple, and now you're dead. And I wonder if hearing these words from their teacher's mouth watered some little seeds of hope in their souls. That's a psalm of victory. I don't know, I don't know what you're up to, Jesus, but, but maybe, maybe this isn't the end of the story. So for us as a church family, I want to ask, what would it look like for us to commit our spirits into the Father's hands? How can we face our daily burdens, our irritabilities, maybe our deep fear and shame 
with a redeeming God writing the end of the story for us? What would it look like? The overarching theme of Psalm 31 is trust. It's trust. Even in his lament and suffering, David continually comes back to trusting in God and his goodness. And in the end, he's even praising God at the end of Psalm 31. So my final question, right, why should we care? Why should we care? I think we should care because David the sinner commits his spirit into God's hands. And Jesus, our Savior, commits his spirit into the Father's hands. So then how can we commit our spirits into God's hands? The the truth is a lot of times we don't, right? Uh, A few weeks ago in in mid-December, we traveled back to Missouri for my little brother's wedding. And it's interesting how location changes us, isn't it? As I parked our van in my parents' driveway, got out of the car, stretched my aching back after driving 1,007 miles, and climbed the steps to their front door, I walked inside that familiar house, and suddenly certain pieces of who I am and how I behave changed. I have a good relationship with my family, but, but there are certain well-worn paths of behavior and interaction that just come back when we change places. The way we talk or joke or eat slide right back on like a comfortable jacket. We have these learned ways of behaving and relating to the world around us, don't we? And if you're anything like me, You have some idols in your life that guide the way you treat people and interact with this world. This morning I want to talk for a minute about one of those idols, the the idol of reputation. The idol of reputation. So um, on this wonderful road trip that we got to take, I I had the privilege of listening to the cinematic classic Up. Um, And one of the characters stood out to me. Charles Muntz. Charles Muntz is an explorer and a dog trainer and a paranoid inventor. And Charles's hunger for a reputation drives him back to Paradise Falls because his colleagues didn't believe him and called him a liar. Because he devotes his life to this quest to capture an exotic bird um, and prove that he's not a fraud. And he gets so obsessed with this quest to redeem his name and fix his reputation, that uh, he's willing to even kill his rivals and uh, even the two main characters and up when he's afraid that they're there to mock him or to defame him. Sadly, I can relate to Charles Muntz. I've never been inclined to murder a Boy Scout or a senior citizen. (laughs) But in my own ways, I will do whatever it takes to protect my reputation. I'm a man who can put enormous pressure on his kids to behave in public and then later sink into a lazy blob on the couch when no one's watching. I can procrastinate on all of my responsibilities and give myself all the grace in the world about how, I, how busy I am, but then lose that same grace, grace and patience 
for those closest to me when they don't stay on top of my arbitrary list of things I think they should have done. I can spend time with friends and then when I head home for the evening, replay everything I said over and over again in my head, kicking myself for anything that might have been selfish or arrogant and realizing how I could have been more pious or more humble or more wise with my words. And a cloud of shame starts to sink over me. And God forbid, there's a chance I'll do the same this afternoon with this sermon. I could go on. I want to improve. I want to be more patient, more loving, more sacrificial at home. I want to be the kind of friend who's always building others up with his speech. But why does it kill me when I mess up? Because I've committed my hand, my spirit into the hands of my reputation. There's an author named uh, James K.A. Smith, and he, he talked about idolatry, and he said, idolatry is less a conscious decision to believe something false and more a learned disposition to hope in what's going to disappoint us. Well, to translate that, he's saying, idolatry isn't dancing around a golden statue in my backyard or burning incense to a painting in my living room. It's grabbing onto what you think of me and what I think of me and being at peace when that's good and depressed when that's bad. Idolatry is when people get big and God gets small. It's a disordered love. It's, it's taking a created thing that's a gift from God and loving it too much. And I think a lot of times these idolatries are, are caught, not taught. Nobody sat me down and told me to be ashamed if I'm overweight and proud if I'm fit. But I can look around and see that's how the world works. I have felt the joy when I see more money than I expected on my banking statement. And I have felt the panic when we weren't going to make it to the end of the month. We practice these idolatries. They become well-worn paths of relating to the world around us, just, how I act, just like how I act a certain way when I go to mom and dad's house. I act a certain way to get peace, to win, to get attention. We absorb these idolatries like the, the water that we swim in in this world. And even as we're being renewed by the Holy Spirit, these old habits die hard. But I have good news. God loves you too much to leave you like that. Sometimes it's painful, but he will rip those opinions that people have of you away. He loves you too much to leave you alone. And aside from our personal spiritual growth as Christians, there's also enormous consequences for these kind of idolatries on our mission as a church. We're terrible at telling other people about Jesus when we're not committing our spirits into his hands. Um, St. Augustine said that idolatry is like falling in love with the boat rather than the destination. He said, every human heart is made for another shore. A country called the, love, the, the God of love. 
And God gives us creation, like, like a boat, like a road to get us there. He gives us all these gifts to get us there. And our destination is a life of love forever with God. But we get in the boat and there's all these things that we start to notice. Man, nice pool. There's a buffet on here, comfy bed. Uh, there's people here and man, I really like them and I like that they like me. The title at our job, the way we keep our yard better than anybody else on the street, the balance in the bank account. Okay, the boat metaphor starting to break down. I realize that. <laughs> but he asked the question, do you remember why you got in the boat? Do you remember why you started the journey? It was to go to the country that God made you for. The problem is the boat isn't going to last forever, but you are. No matter how good your, your reputation is, people are going to forget about you. Our heart, my heart, your heart, is built for another shore. And we settle for these other things, attention, success, whatever it might be. And we will never be satisfied by those things. Even if you get it, it's not enough. It's going to let you down. Every idol you have, if you get it, it will let you down. How much is enough? How many people, fellow leaders at Trinity, how many people have to be here on a Sunday morning before we're happy? Just a few more. What if you're the fourth best parent here, not the first? Is that enough? What if you're the second best neighbor anybody has ever had? Will that be enough for you? The thing is, you win some of these things and it still leaves you feeling restless. Maybe that's because we weren't created to be liked by everybody or to have everything, but to be loved by one, the one who matters. You see, then things would change if that's really how we're, we were created, if that's how God made us, then I think things could change because then it wouldn't matter what people thought about us or what people could do to us. Then we would share our hearts with our neighbors, not because they're a project, but because we love them and we want them to know what we have. Our pride and our fear and our pessimism would melt in God's hands. And we would be on mission with Jesus in the way that he asked us to. When Jesus is enough, we're finally free and happy to be on mission with him and for him. You know, the, it's interesting to me that the last thing Jesus did in all four Gospels was call his closest friends to him and sent them out. He, he, he's basically saying, guys, this isn't about us. This isn't about, it was never about the group. It was always about the kingdom going forward. It used to be that Israel was biological, political, centered in the temple, and now it's go and tell. Anybody can be part of God's family. Every book in the four gospels, Jesus says something along the lines of, go to the nations. 
tell people, make disciples. And we start with the person next to us. We start with our neighbors and our family and our coworkers. But Jesus' way over and over is that we would go to the hurting, to the poor, not where it's easy and convenient, sometimes even to the ends of the earth so that people can have the treasure that we've found. So my, my last question then is how in the world can we do this, right? This is a tall order that I'm supposed to somehow commit my spirit into God's hands. What, how do I do that? How can we commit our spirits into God's hand? And I think the answer is in verse 1 of Psalm 31. We're going to be looking at a couple verses. So if you would open up to Psalm 31, I think you'd find that really helpful. And this is how I want to wrap up. Let's look at verse 1. David asks Yahweh to deliver him in righteousness. How can a sinner like David be asking a righteous and holy and a just God to deliver him in righteousness and not in forgiveness? Why does he say, in your righteousness, forget, deliver me, not in your mercy or in your forgiveness? Righteousness is a strange word to me for a sinner to use towards God. Well, in the 1500s, there was a, a monk who was studying the Psalms. He was teaching at a university through the Psalms, and he came to this verse, Psalm 31.1, and he was confused just like I am. He said, how could God's righteousness save a sinner like me or like David? And so like a good student, he started to look up the other places where the Bible uses that word, because he thought God's righteousness can only send a sinner to hell. It can't rescue him. But then he read Romans 1.17 that says something very similar. It says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that saves us through faith. And as he pondered this, he realized that Romans tells us we're, we who have faith are made right with God not by our righteousness, not by a fair, holy, just righteousness, but by a righteousness that comes from somebody else, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. David isn't saying, God, because you're so fair and you always punish sin, deliver me. David is saying, remember the promise that you made to your people. That's what he's saying. Remember your covenant righteousness. You promised that you would take care of your people, God. You promised. So remember that promise and deliver me. And so just like David, we need some righteousness that comes from, not, from God, not from ourselves. We need a foreigner, a guest, an invader, somebody else to give us their righteousness. God's righteousness to believers isn't the holy justice righteousness that punishes sin. It's a gracious and merciful righteousness where he justifies us. He makes us just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had always done everything we were supposed to do by faith, by trusting 
in Jesus. We trust Jesus and God makes us righteous. On our own merit, there's no way that we could ever be the righteous and faithful ones that David talks about in Psalm 31. On our own, we're the enemies in that list. We turn our, way, our eyes away from our suffering neighbors. We hate our enemies and, and we murder them in our hearts. We're prideful and we wish everybody would acknowledge how great and important we are. Without Christ, we're God's enemies. And we need to be rescued. Our only hope is that someone could have been righteous and perfect in our place. So the Father sent the Son. God so loved the world, including you and me, that he sent his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. You can sum up Christianity like this, four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Let's look at how Jesus is our perfect substitute in Psalm 31. In verse 6, look at verse 6 with me. Because Jesus glorified the Father, our idolatry is forgiven. In verse 7, because Jesus was distressed, we can live at peace. Verse 10, because Jesus gave up his strength as our sacrifice, we have the strength to face tomorrow. Verse 11, Jesus became a reproach so that we might be honored as sons and daughters. Verse 12, Jesus was forgotten so that we can be remembered. Jesus was broken so that we might be made whole. Verse 13, while Jesus' enemies schemed together to take his life, our triune God planned that he would deliver us from death. In verse 16, the father turned his face away from his son so that he could make his face shine on us. And in verse 17, our Lord was put to shame so that we would be free from our own shame and guilt. Instead of calling for justice and death, demanding punishment and destruction on his enemies like David did, Jesus said, I'll take God's wrath in your place. And by his spirit, he's teaching us to take refuge in God. David said, save me, kill them. And Jesus said, kill me, save them. While David was delivered from death, Jesus delivers us through his death. God rescued David from his enemies on earth. Even though we were Jesus' enemies, he rescued us by how he lived, died, was buried, and rose again in our place. Only by Jesus' blood can we say with any confidence, into your hand we commit our spirits. You have redeemed us, O faithful God. Amen.